Hello, friends, <laughs> and welcome back to another episode of Crime at the Family Table. I am your illustrious host, Alyssa. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I love that description. Okay, now. At the two-long horn this week, I'm, I've, been, I've been having a pretty good week, um, or last week was pretty good week. Uh, and I, of course, am joined by none other than the incomparable, un- undeniable Latanya. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. Um, I'm glad you guys are with us this week. And I look forward to um, talking to you guys about our case. Uh, Alyssa, how was your week uh, and weekend? My my weekend was pretty good. What did I do this weekend? We went to the mall, had like a quick little family day. Um, I got my baby's ears pierced, my one-year-old. So I don't know why I almost wanted to cry, but she has her. I think all moms do. Like all moms. I think my mom cried. Like my first one, I was just excited. I was like, cool, we are his parents. Yay, this happens, you know, with baby girls. But I think because I know she's she's my last one that I'm like, oh, she's growing up so fast. She got sneakers. She's so cute. Hopefully she'll actually want to walk in them because she's, she's standing up. She's standing solid, but she will not, she ain't trying to walk, but a pretty good struggle yeah. duggle of a one-year-old struggle duggle struggle duggles how was your oh. my weekend was good i actually been on vacation this weekend so like i'm getting rest folks and trying to you know be my best tanya possible bringing the best me forward because most definitely needed because for some reason everybody at my job in september is taking off because they have like we have like this thing called carryover because our our vacation doesn't keep accruing, so we have carryover time that we have to use before September. So all of the people at my job are taking off in September, so I had to take off in August. So you know, kind of stupid, but such is life. Such is life. I feel like, I mean, I know they can't give us all like mental health days, but I feel like mental health days should be built in to a lot of these things like on top of your regular PTO like it should be mental health days to where you just like you know what today is just a day and I can't do it today Mm -hmm. so I'm taking my mental health day but I don't make the rules right like I think one of the big things that like I think America just deals with is just like they understand that there's mental health crises but they don't understand that people like stress overworking burnout especially when you're trying to produce these numbers and get clients and see people it's it's a lot you need to take a minute like a break just a second to like recalibrate and like do what you need to do like I mean I feel like it should be like an extra two weeks given out of the year that is just considered mental health time mm-hmm. that you can just use it like hey i'm taking the i'm taking the mh giving the mh good morning it ain't hurt nobody actually it's preventing me from hurting somebody 
<laughs> some days. <laughs> I'll be on the edge. Well, hopefully when you vote for Latanya for president, uh, <laughs> she'll, <laughs> she'll still she'll stand on that platform of MHD. Listen, vote for me. Vote for Pedro. <laughs> That's what my teacher <laughs> Let them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I um, I'm looking forward to getting into this week's episode with you guys. Like, but, but before I do get into this episode, I have to mention because I just feel like it's an essential part of the reason that I chose to do um this case this week. Um. I know that the world is still reeling from the Montgomery brawl <sighs> that was seen across America. Ah, beautiful. Did I say quack? I was going <laughs> to say chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. Mwah, 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 mwah. I love to see it. Love to see it. Shine a light on them. Uh, it, it, this, like, so the, the case that I'm, because of the decade that I'm, doing this because as you guys know this season is all about the decades of crime and we're getting into the 1960s now and in the 1960s if anybody knows it's like the civil rights era is getting the pumping we get a lot of different changes especially with women rights um uh, racial rights and things like that like it's so that made me choose it but i'm like when I heard the Montgomery brawl and I saw that chair go across that white woman, I was like, okay. Oh my God. Like the fight was just so crazy. Like it was insanity. It was one of those things where I just felt proud. It felt like second uh, Juneteenth. Like it was like Juneteenth's cousin. A little sister for real, for real. The little bad little sister they want to fight everybody <laughs> now they're trying to say that it wasn't really a chair there like I'm just oh, like no. it most definitely was a chair like we saw it came from the boat that's what I thought but now yeah, that like, I, there was no chair like, oh, are you sure I, I was there like I felt like I was there so I would tell you it was a chair but if it means brother Reggie gets out of gets out of lockup, I mean it might not have been a chair. That's all I'm gonna say. Because he's been arrested, like right uh I think I don't know what his last name is, but he um was the one who got like had the chair that we saw. And the thing about it is is that he's now like facing charges for that because he kind of was the reason why like the police initially like what we saw the police getting really involved is because they saw him get in the chair. However, the reason why he got this chair is because as you can see in the dice up in everybody's videos is that like these people were just hitting them and like beating on them. Like, and, like not like trying to beat on them. And he was just like, oh no, sister, y'all not some innocent folk. I'm going to knock y'all down a peg or two or three. They try to keep it real. Like, oh, we were just on the boat and no. We got the footages. 
<laughs> we got we got the multiple uh uh areas of footage and y'all was wrong and then come to find out it wasn't even y'all got so it's crazy because like the guy whose boat it really was like we see him in the first video where like it's coming like the video is coming from the boat and it's like filming the dock and like he's there and he's trying to talk to him and then all of a sudden these other people just get involved who are just on the boat as well like why are you getting all hmm, high and hot in your chest over a boat that's not even yours I just... safe to say safe to say that the that the main takeaway from here is mind the business that pays you because the business that pays says, you is, is about to be shut down Right, and and the tea, and the tea, like you can't even the business that pays you one like is being torn up. Like they had to put permanently closed on the business in order for it uh to not keep receiving reviews. So like that's what places will do. Like they won't necessarily shut down, but they'll shut down the site. Because they're just like, they're being bombarded with like messages. At, rightfully so. Because apparently there's rumor, rumor mill is going on around is that the situation extended beyond like what happened there. Like it was some things heard, like there was like other racist remarks that were heard, things like that that were being said. So it was like, it was a lot. And of course, the main reason for the incident anyway was racism, but it's like it it kept going. Like they just they just wouldn't stop. So at the end of the day, you won't stop. We not gonna stop. So you wanna go there? We go. Listen, I I am not Michelle Obama. You go low, I'm gonna take it to hell. I was gonna say <laughs> if you wanna if you wanna post up with that girl, with that little girl say every time I post up, you wanna. <laughs> Whatever she said, like, yo, that little girl is an icon. I really hope she's doing well. I do too. I need follow ups on some of these little kids when they do these things. <laughs> I, I need to where they now for the for the memes and the and the yes. those kids. and the vines. I think. Oh my gosh! I think what she actually said was, "You be running your mouth, but anytime I want to post up, you want to get quiet." Oh yeah. <laughs> I was like, listen, they want to throw stones to hide their hands. It's crazy. Crazy. She knew at a young age. At a very young age. And she was gonna get with you. So if okay, so all right. So this is just preparing us for this case. So I wanna give a fair warning before I get into today's episode that today's case is a heavy one. It deals with um, racism, uh, racial divide. It is in our tense times as we've been dealing with for a very long time. Um, if you feel like this is too much of a topic for you that you don't feel comfortable in hearing, please take a break and take care of yourself. Um, and hopefully you're able to support going forward with our little podcast that could. Um, Without further ado, I am doing the 1960s, or better known as the Great Society Age. So, 
during this era, of course, we have um, JFK, who is seeing like a bright future with laws and reforms going into our country. So he plans on basically leveling the playing field when it comes to those that face injustice um, and um, inequalities. Um, however, as as is so all all people ain't always on your side who you think is going to be on your side. The fact is, is that um, even though there was a, a lot of Democrats in Congress at the time, they weren't all on board for the shift that he was trying to make to like for, for, for addressing systematic oppressions and um, righting the wrongs of the past and moving America forward. So, like, they would definitely push back against him, like, throughout his presidency. Um, the next president that had came down to, um, also, just to let you know, like, a lot of these, quote-unquote, Democrats were, like, Southern Democrats. And we're dealing with, like, these Southern Democrats, like, I just feel like they are Democrats that, I don't want you in bondage, but... I don't want you going to my school or breathing my air. Was that who they used to call Dixie Creeks? So, yeah, like, this is when that shift started to happen. Like, the Dixie Cracks started to come in. Um, a lot of the shift, like, so a lot of Democrats, Democrats had shifted from Democrats to conservatives. And this is where we, like, really see this major shift from, like, where the line was drawn of who Democrats were representatively in their morals and values and things like that versus like Republicans okay. and yeah. conservatives. Like this is where we really see like that was definitely made with like when Lincoln was in office, but it more so like we just kept having these, I feel like these big moments, especially because when you draw such a hard line that you're going to uh, be addressing issues of inequality, and that becomes your premise because here's the thing, Lincoln didn't even want that for us. Like Lincoln, if Lincoln is quoted as saying in his speeches and in writings that he could keep slavery intact, he would have. So his shift was simply because he knew he needed, he knew he needed to get rid of slavery in order to win the war. So if he didn't have to do that, then because the main purpose of what Confederacy wanted was to keep slaves in, in 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 shackles. So, all right. Without further ado, we now go into 1964. Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson is president. He comes after JFK, who has been assassinated, um, and he's also on a mission to embark on pushing um, pushing forward on reforms that will touch on racial injustices, poverty, and programs. And this is where we start seeing the major programs that we have today that are constantly under fire. So Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, Job Corp is also um, created during this time. Um, and this was meant to bridge the divide um, between um, African-Americans and other people of color in terms of economic, social, and racial front. So... Of course, this was just meant to make sure people had access and make sure people that had access to 
uh, social programs. Um, the next order of business, of course, in the 60s, I feel like I never realized that this happened in the 60s, but right. I'm like, okay, because it, it feels like too so long ago, but the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam yeah. War happened in the 1960s. So Johnson, this is where he kind of took a nosedive. This is why he really wasn't a long-term, he wasn't a second, um, he didn't win his re-election after this because of the of his um addressing of the Vietnam War. Like no one wanted the Vietnam War for for, for real. So um so there was a fury raging in Vietnam at this time. And due to like America's commitment to the anti communist communist um of the uh of South Vietnam and like their partnership into making sure they kept the democracy um, he basically was just like, okay, he ap approved launching the draft and the war was met with strife um, from protests that took on in the street and the fight against involvement in the war. And so this is where, so we get multiple things that happen in the 60s. So not only are we getting the civil rights movement, which I'm going to get into in a moment, we're, we also are dealing with the anti-war movement, hippie era. We also having women's rights movements that are going on all in the same decade. Like so many things, major moments are put on the table at this time. So during the civil rights era, we had the Jim Crow South that loomed with the civil rights protests mounting. Uh, one noble protest um, was that I remember seeing like a picture of, like I remember this image of, in 1960, in um, Greensboro, North Carolina, um, I'm sure many of you, our listeners, if you haven't seen this picture, you might look into it. Um, there were protests being done by students. So it wasn't only like an adults-only situation. So like um, in Greensboro, um, North Carolina, you have um, a protest with Black students lining in a lunch counter while white uh, patrons poured food over them as they were um, um as they surrounded them and harassed and harassed the peaceful protesters. So this is like one of the images like and it also kind of go it's gonna go into like the case that we're gonna be talking about today, but it's just like talking about how also a lot of youth involvement was happening at this time as well. Like a lot of these things were not because some people were just complacent. The older generations were sometimes complacent in certain things and were not moving the pendulum forward. So you had a lot of student involvement. Like, and when I'm talking students, I mean like high schoolers, like and college students. So like we're getting a lot of shifts of people boots on the ground. So Lyndon Johnson was keeping his promise of making changes and injustice in 1964. Um, he got the civil rights bill through to Congress, and this prohibited discrimination of women and minorities, and given the Justice Department the ability to sue states for failure to provide an equal, non-discriminatory environment. However, as we know, this is not um, the, the, the catch-all solution to everything. Things, things still were hard at this time, and also it might have like pushed the fire under things. So it's crazy because um, I know that like, and, like a lot of people, like we kind of, people kind of go back and forth with their feelings about Martin Luther King, for example, is that he kind of, he wanted 
us to integrate into society where we would have the same access to things. But something like, it's a quote that he said, and I'm not going to say it for word for word, but it's something that he mentioned where he basically felt bad for working towards getting to us to these moments of um, integration because the other side of that oppression, the oppressor, was simply we were sending them probably into the fire where yeah. because nothing so yes it is great to give people like especially people that are oppressed like and the oppressed in the oppressed environment and the people that are marginalized and uh improvements and things like that but if you if you don't meet that same progression with reteaching and and having the other side unlearn the things of their past or the things of their present, you will constantly be hit with strife at every turn. And these people will not integrate into society well. Like, it, it just won't happen. We, we see it time and time again, like, that just because, you, like, we can press forward, but if the other side is is constantly being filled with hate still for us any progression we have forward is going to be them seeing as us trying to be better than them and are undeserving of of what we've received so it definitely um it definitely was like a band-aid solution if anything like it's it was nice in theory but in practice it wasn't enough done to make sure that the environment we were going into was safe and that will be more made more apparent when I go into our case. So without um so moving forward, so the 60s, of course, had a lot of radical um activism, such as the student um activism in Greenboro, the Black Panther Party, the feminine mystique of 1963, the Equal Um Pay Act, and the um the counterculture from hippies. Um the 60, 60s also was met with um, the rise of the silent majority and no folks. Um, the, the demon known as Trump did not invent this idea. This has always been something that has been there, which is the silent majority arose and elected Richard Nixon of 1968. The silent majority being people that were just disgruntled with like the things go going on for two presidents of pushing um, things forward with injustice needs, but leaving these quote-unquote uh, poor whites in in the dust. And these were people that did not want the pendulum move forward. And also, they were people that were Democrats as well. This is where we get into this uh, a major shift. So this is was much due to the Vietnam War, which we came in... Um, unwinnable uh considered an unwinnable war like it was very well known that like we went into this blind with the idea that we we as americans and i think that this is from this idea that america won two world wars and we were just feeling ourselves we were just strong and 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 feeling like we were unstoppable but that definitely wasn't the case um, and this split off uh, a lot of Democrats, again, like from the party. So going back to the student activism 
of of the 1960s, we can get into our main topic of our case um, for this week. And again, like I said, like I want to preface this case before I get into it, that if you guys do not want to be talking about um, hearing about some of the atrocities that have been experienced and you just kind of are worn out and don't want to hear that, that is perfectly okay. Take care of yourself first and foremost. Okay. So, um, one of the organi organizations that had really um, kind of taken the civil rights era by storm and had and had joined in with um, with a major known player in the civil rights game, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., um, was the group um, CORE. So, um, so CORE standed for the Congress of Racial Equality. They were founded in 1960, um, uh, well, 1942, and they were uh, founded in Chicago by college students. Um, they were an interracial uh, group, and they were founded by members uh, James Leonard Farmer Jr. and uh, um, Pauline Pauli uh, Murray, George um, Mills Hauser, uh, Elise. Um, Ellie Bernice um, Fisher. And Homer A. Uh, Jack. Uh, so they were definitely um, a group of mixed individuals, but they were primarily um, white with two thirds of, of um, their members being white and only one third of them being black. Um, however, their Process, their process was a lot like uh, Martin Luther King, where they believed in the teachings of um, um, Gandhi, who was about nonviolence and nonviolent non protest, and they took that and formulated uh, their process. So um, CORE, as they are known, and what I will be going for as saying they are, um, they had found a lot of support with working with MLK um, together during the 50s um, until his assassination in the mid-60s. This relationship was based on the fact that CORE, um, uh, of CORE's belief system, and they did have a parent organization called the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and... Um, And the Fellowship of Reconciliation was the major holder. However, CORE was, um, ended up being like the primary group that went on to partner with um, Martin Luther King during his um, work during the Montgomery bus um, boycott and other um, adventures during the 50s. Uh, CORE um, utilized sit-ins and nonviolent tactics to battle and shed light on the racist state of, um, in the U.S. Early activists of CORE would, um, would use such things as sit-ins and attempt to uh, integrate Chicago restaurants in the 40s, and CORE had um, a pre-freedom ride, which was in 1947, called the Journey of Reconciliation. This multi-state bus ride was in an attempt to see if the Supreme Court's ruling that desegregation of interstate travel was actually happening. Um, though there were 
there was um, not much violence. There were still arrests that um, had occurred. MLK had also decided to continue working with them when he saw like their ability to, uh, to work together as well as how they turned out for him. So during the Montgomery bus boycott, CORE really was boots on the ground and in support with him. And so seeing how diligent and supportive and determined these groups were, um, this, this was a very good relationship and definitely was, it was met together with a nice um, bow on it. So as much success as they had with nonviolent um, protests for um, uh, especially with sit-ins, which CORE supported, CORE advised students in the South through the use of field secretaries. So they were kind of like expanding their reach from just being a Chicago-based um, organization to other states and then they would send field secretaries down that would kind of help people support churches, meet with different civil rights groups and come up with nonviolent activities such as sit-ins and other forms of nonviolent protests. In 1961, CORE organized Freedom Rides. Um, MLK supported these efforts um, and commended them on their diligence, but however he advised against um, this due to how dangerous it was. Um, this is due to these freedom rides um, heading into unknown but understood um, danger in the South. And it, an example of this is that um, during one of these freedom rides uh, in Aston, Alabama, uh, a bus was firebombed and those uh, on the bus that ran out were met with an angry white mob. So it was kind of used as like a means to spook them. And well, if they died, they died, but it was meant to get them out so they could attack them. Um, however, CORE was not, you know, dissuaded by this and they continued on doing free the freedom rides. CORE um, then focused efforts towards voter registration CORE and other groups joined the Council of um, the Federated Organization COFO, 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 <laughs> and coordinated uh, with activists uh, um, on the local and national civil rights organizations in Mississippi. The CF, uh, COFO efforts worked towards um, the 1964 uh, Freedom Summer, which is the kind of uh, place and time frame we're working on. So Freedom Summer was kind of met with um, a way to like get organizers down in Mississippi, which has been met with a lot of um, dangerous and, and really riled up racial violence. So this can be seen from the KKK would come and do cross burnings across Mississippi across the state of Mississippi. Um, they were also were known to have burned down churches. One church in particular um, was the Mount Zion um, Church. Uh, 
uh, three men were um, down from core, from the core group, uh, were down in Mississippi. And I'm so, so uh, I'm going to say this, but like I know, like I giggle when I heard this a little bit. In Philadelphia, Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. That's a- very interesting. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I forget that there's really like other Philadelphias. So <laughs> I was like getting a little confused. I was like, Philadelphia. And I just kept saying Philadelphia. And I was just like, this ain't this. okay. There's so, a Philadelphia, and- Mississippi. Yeah. It sure is. So, um, so those three men were Michael uh, Werner, Sherwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney. Michael um, um, and Andrew were two um, white men, and James Cheney was African-American, just so we can get the basis. And they're young, so they're like students. Like they're, um, However, Michael is... Um, I believe Michael is the one that's married. So we will get into that. So in the hot uh, Mississippi summer of June 21st, 1964, um, these three men went down, um, went down to Mississippi um, to kind of see what the damage that had been done to Mount Zion um, in Philadelphia, Mississippi. In the, and Philadelphia, Mississippi is in the Neshoba um, County. Uh, I may be pronouncing that wrong, Mississippians. Please give me some slack. Um, so Michael uh, Schwerner, oh yeah, I think it's Schwerner. Schwerner um, went down um, to Mississippi. So he was already in Mississippi and was known to work in Mount Zion, but he was not there on the day that the burning happened. Um, so the danger that was um, worn by MLK was apparent here. The Ku Klux Klan was at, was at an all-time high with 10,000 members at this time. Mississippi was like the epicenter for the, for the KKK. Um, these Klan members were not all bark. They they were literally, like I said, doing cross burnings across the state. And in the summer of 64, the Klan burned down um, upwards of 20 black churches and and of course, that one one of those churches was the Mount Zion Baptist Church. Um, the members of the church, uh, which Warner would work in Mount Zion when he was kind of doing recognizances. Like I said, they were sending field secretaries. And what I'm going to guess is that Warner was a uh, was a field secretary in a sense. So he would just work in there with the groups. And I feel like that the Kulasan also were. Um, targeting these black churches because they knew that they were meet-up spots for so like they knew black churches were meet-up spots for a lot of the civil rights organizers. So they were meaning to disrupt uh, organizers and cause as much violence and bedlam because they knew that these people wouldn't be helped. Um, That's like I said, short. It's it's insane because like to to have that so much hate and 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 something that I just really understand is that these clan members are people's grandparents that exist now. So I was going to say here and now still alive because in nineteen that date my my grandma's birthday in June so she would have just turned eighteen. She's still very much alive. So yes. 
Them people are still living. Both of my grandmothers would, would have been in their teenage years because my grandma, my my mom's mom was born in 38 and my, my dad's mom was born in 39. So they would have been like 15, 14 around this time. They would have been like very aware of of these scenarios that were going on at least like even if it's not on like a scale like a a scale of like because right now like we get in this era that we live in now everything's at the tip of our fingers but but we don't have access like but back then they didn't have access to everything that was going on in philadelphia mississippi but in their own experience the things that were going on and like the strife that they had to go through. Also, my grandma, uh, my dad's mom grew up in South Carolina. So she would have been very aware of the tensions that were going on. And she still, to this day, like, so she moved to Philadelphia and then moved back down south. And she's still, there's still a variation of what that experience is in in the south like it still exists like you you feel it in the history it's probably so ingrained in the it's probably in the in the roots of the trees at this point like it's in the soil yeah mm-hmm. and it's like and what is so wild is like where my grandma lives is like there's like cotton cotton fields like there's like a lot of them yeah and still. they have a huge south carolina has a huge cotton um industry so like they're like one of the i feel like one of the main producers if not the main producers of cotton that we see in america and so when you see that and you just recognize the history of what that means and what that entails it is so apparent like the pain that comes from this place the pain that lives in 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 this place in this in this in this time it, yes, it moves on, but those things are still there. So it, it's insane. Um, so, so like I said, like uh, Schwarner was not there at the time. He was in Oxford, uh, Ohio, bef- when this when the Mount Zion church burning actually happened. Um, and when they got there back to um, Neshoba County, they were they saw that it was decimated. Like there was no church. Like I'm pretty sure it was the charred bones of the vibrant church that would have been. Also, when the Mount Zion church um, was burnt down, um, it the there were people that were inside of the church at first and then they came out and again, they were met with violence. Like, so it's like, it's insane the level like you already burnt the church and 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 you're gonna like and I don't want to get into this too much folk but I am not someone who just looks at things like okay like these are some horrible people but you're gonna realize that some of these people claim to be Christians and we're going to get into that in a little bit. We're going to get into that in a little smidge bit. As they're trying, like, these these clan members, like, I just want you to know, the history of clan members, they would hold, they would also, too, hold sermons and, and, and space in these times about how they were going to burn houses 
and crosses in front of people's houses, folks. Like this, yeah. these things exist. These people were talking about decimating and livelihoods of people and sending fear into black households and or households of people that were activists trying to move us forward just to just to teach a lesson while in church. Mm-hmm. And it's so sick. It's a sick, 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 twisted, sick, sick, twisted telling of things. So without letting it take it really is like just to use like to perverse the word and to use it to to incentivize you into furthering your message of hate and i just and i just can't i just can't these like these were like very well-known things like they weren't hiding it like these people were not just simple like they were pillars in their communities like these people held and people knew about this and it was so just known like they could be your firemen they could be your police officers they could be the councilmen in the community and like that was just known and 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 while they were praying and clapping their hands about how they were going to get black people out of their community and make sure to further oppress them, burn down their houses and churches and burn crosses in their house, they were praising the Lord. It's sick. It's sick. It's sick and twisted. That's so sad that people, there are people like that in the world, but like, God is not pleased. <laughs> I know. Like, not God pleased. is weeping, y'all. God is weeping. <laughs> he would not be happy about this. Like, even just because, and it's crazy because back then, and my, my mom has told these stories, my grandma has told these stories, the Black church was the center of a lot of communities, especially Black communities. And they were mm-hmm. in charge of, like, things like you were saying, like the civil rights movement, like um, meeting places for different things. They were, they were, you know, raising collections to get people bailed out of jail when they were jailed for protesting. Like they were rallying around people when they were getting lynched, like stuff like that. So it, it, they were the pillar of a community and they knew where to strike. And that's the part that is, is, mm-hmm. is heartening. Cause like they knew what they were doing for. Yeah, and and it's crazy because we understand in the history of America that they try even to this day to squash out with this idea that they don't want us to know the truth. And like uh, the truth of the matter is, is that the church became a place of refuge for for us. But in the beginning, it was used by by these slave owners as a means of kind of squelching oppression like yes i'm going to keep you enchained and in shackle but i'm going to have you you're allowed to praise and go into church and then i'm going to make sure i talk to you in this church about how it's okay that you're enslaved that god wants you to be enslaved it is so perverse like the perversion because they do not see the validity in black worship because if if 
they're using black worship to get themselves out of oppression. That's not what they wanted. They wanted the black church to be used as a means of furthering that oppression and to perverse the course of what the Bible says. So before people could read and write and stuff like that, they were telling them what that Bible said. They were telling them what was the word and what was right and what was law and order. But now the church is being used as a hub and a space of community for Black people to actually find common ground and peace. and, And even people, and it's crazy because even though like, like the black church would be like the rec center of today. Like that, like, because they're, because they didn't, we didn't have these things. So the black church serves as a space, like for people from all walks of life to come into and meet downstairs in the basement and talk for hours into late, in the late hours of the evening about plans that they were making. The Montgomery bus boycott was literally made in a basement it was literally planned in the basement and so it's insane like how certain things like how you can say you're you are someone but you really aren't like you just you just aren't you're a wicked wicked person and it's it's gonna get worse, folks. It's it's getting worse. Like if the if the cross and the church and the beating of black bodies is not even enough, and not only black bodies, but like white bodies as well, white um allyship and white accomplicehood, because these people were not just like they were just not passive. Um, Michael and Andrew were not passive um allies, quote unquote. They were they were people that were walking the walk and talking the talk. Like, they were people that were getting beat up, black and blue, eyes swole shut, locked up, putting their bodies and lives on the line when it came to protecting and moving this conversation forward. So, like, to really commemorate those type, those people that really did that, because it's so easy for people, especially nowadays, because we are kind of in this quiet but rustling time to say well I'm an ally and I'm this and I just don't feel like y'all really know what that means like these people knew what that meant yeah and knew and knew what they were willing to lose because you as we will get into it need to be willing to lose your life because that's what it came down to at the at the end of the day are you willing to risk your life and livelihood for for the cause because it's not all pretty, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It is it is a long struggle, and it is, and sometimes it may feel like the end is never in sight, like the goalpost is being pushed further and further away. And you have to be willing to and to not only talk the talk but walk the walk. And these were kids. That's the crazy part. I was at Thursday. Thursday at Jock and Jill's when I was in college and they were literally changing history. (laughs) Right. Like these people will go down in our history books and it's, it's insane. So Andrew at the time was 21. I believe that James Cheney, he also was 21 at this time. And um, Michael was the oldest at um, 20, 25. 
So he also was married at this time to Rita um, Bender or Rita uh, Schwerner. Um, and we're going to get into her in a moment because she's a badass. Okay. Oh, so Rita's a badass. We love Rita. So um, where was I? So um, so um, after like assessing the scene and I guess getting down um, notes like and like what kind of maybe even talking to people from the Mount Zion church and like things like that, the um, the men proceeded to leave going back to the meeting post for the core members that was in, I believe, Marina County, um, Marina, uh, Mississippi, which is the next uh, town over. Um, in order to kind of touch base with the other core members to kind of uh, meet and talk shop. Um, however, they would never make it there to that meet spot. Um, the, the men were stopped by police on their way. Um, police were aware of the core members and they recognized the vehicle as a core vehicle, which was a station wagon. Um, Cheney was the driver at this time and he was charged with speeding. Um, and even though this would be something as small as giving a ticket or a fine, even at this point in time in 1964, um, all three men were arrested and um, put into the um, police jail. The arresting officer was a sheriff's deputy by the name of Cecil Price. Please remember that name. Um, Cecil took the three men into uh, the Neshobe uh, um County uh county jail um and was holding them uh at the jail and at around 4 p.m. I guess the men wanted to like make a call, like, hey, like I this is our right uh -huh. to make a phone. So we get one. Like they were trying to kind of touch base with like, you know, letting the core members understand like where they were because also so, because what I'm thinking is something that is very well known in like civil rights era is that when you are arrested and you don't meet up at the designated spot, so like you're, like everything is coordinated. So you're going to be at this spot from this time to this time, and we're expected to meet here and talk shop at this time. If you do not meet in this spot, we are to have that understanding that you are and you have been intercepted by in some way, somehow, and most likely it's been due to an official bullshit arrest. And why I say official bullshit arrest, of course, you guys can read between the lines. An official bullshit arrest is you're saying I was speeding. I clearly wasn't speeding. I'm clearly being arrested for the being black, riding around with these two white men. And you know the reason why I'm riding around with these two white men is because I'm involved within a, an activist group. And so they would throw out these bullshit things that were basic things that could have been easily handled by taking them to the jail like um the speeding ticket fines were listed in the front of the deputies uh in front of the sheriff's office however uh cecil price told the men that they would have to wait for a justice of the peace in order to process the fine the men were not allowed to again make the phone call and the four members in uh, oh, it's Meriden. Uh, and Meriden were worried. And when the men did not arrive um, 
they called jails in the local area and police stations. And though the Philadelphia jail denies this, there is record that on um, June 21st at 5.30 p.m., a phone call was made to Philadelphia, the Philadelphia, um, the Philadelphia jail in order to see if the men were there. What happened during this phone call is unknown, but they did make a phone call um, regarding their whereabouts. Um, and I'm pretty sure what happened was like they probably lied, denied, and whatever. And you'll probably and you'll see why. So Price uh then comes back um later and processes a fine around 10 p.m. Um with no justice of peace in tow because of course it wasn't. He just wanted to make these men stew because he's a bastard. Um and he told the um he told the men to leave Neshobe County and this would be and this would be the last time um, they are officially um, seen alive. So, so just so we can understand that um, the Lindbergh Law of 1932 allows um, for kidnappings to be considered federal cases. This is why when um, you see kidnapping cases or cases where it's believed a kidnapping has happened, that the local FBI will get involved. Is is within um, understanding that after um, not meeting at the designated spot and then a day goes by that this was considered an official kidnapping. Um, even though it's very, like, I found it very strange. Like, why are they, like, hold up. Like, they're actually going to consider this a kidnapping? And then I had to be like, oh, shit, of course they are. Because it's not just Cheney, James Cheney, that's involved in this, who's the Black man. It's two white men who are with him. And so this has been accelerated into being a um, federal kidnapping case. However, they were not able to have FBI from Mississippi because at that time there was no Mississippi uh, FBI office yet. So they had to use the neighboring state's New Orleans office to come in and they worked on figuring out where the men were. So uh, the court station wagon was found and it was burned in order to hide evidence. This allowed the um, the officers to understand that this was no longer a, re a rescue. This was a recovery operation and a murder inquiry. Uh, Schwerner's wife, Rita, false bitch, uh, um, probably reeling from um, the missing and possible murder of her husband, used her voice to draw attention to the racial violence um, that was going on in Mississippi. She is quoted as saying, the slaying of a Negro in Mississippi is not news. It is only because my husband and Andrew Goodman were white that the nation alarm has been sounded. She said this during an interview and her voice, like, and I really, also, folks, I want y'all to understand that this is 1960s. Though we were not considered black at this time. We didn't become black until I believe in like the 70s, yeah. like maybe the 70s or 80s. Like we were still considered like Negro and colored. Yeah. Like, Crazy so that was like, she's not being racist, folks. That was actually just the terminology used. <laughs> So that is crazy how that even that changed. Because my great grandma, apparently she used to, she said she, well, 
she was born in 1927. So for her, she was like, you know, in the 70s when it was like, I'm black and I'm proud. She, was, she didn't want to be black. She's like, I'm colored. But she came from a different era in time. So it's just interesting to see how it's evolved to now African-American, we're back to black. Like, it's interesting. Right. I could imagine yeah, and it's, Negro, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> a, a Negro, a I, Negro sounds too much like the other one, okay? I'm okay and, with color, but Negro... Negro, that's a different story. Like, I found out, like, fairly in the last few years that apparently um, in some African nations, and in, in one included in South Africa, they, like, I think South Africa is the main one, but, like, they have a subgroup of Black people. So people are not, like, so there's, like, Black and then there's Colored. So people of mixed race are considered Colored. They are not considered black, and so they are not counted into black statistics. And they go hard. Like there was this woman I saw her on TikTok, and she literally was just like, "I'm not black. Like I'm I'm a colored person." And she does not identify as a black person. She her identity is as a colored person. And you know, people try to have this conversation with her, and like she don't want to hear it, but like understand that black really is a catch-all term it is anyone of of any african ancestry is a is black but not all people for example are african-american only if you are a person of chattel slavery america and bought here on uh the ships and your ancestry there are you considered african-american colored is a colored and things like that i'm guessing it's used as and of course this is something of course white people came up with because white people love to break up people from from their heritage to disconnect us and to make us like we're so busy trying to convince this woman that she's black she's fighting so hard against us because she probably has privileges that exist within being colored because she's not black black is the bottom then the nigga is the bottom. Across the board. <laughs> Across the world. And she is a light-skinned black woman. Like she like she is like she kind of looks like for me, if I was gonna say like I'm light skinned, but like I have black features. And you can tell I'm black. But like she reminds me of my grandmother who is biracial. So she looks biracial. She looks like biracial and literally on her birth certificate it says colored so like and but here's the thing even on some other people's birth certificates like some old birth certificates they, they people have some of their old original birth certificates they say negro on them i think my grandma said colored yeah like colored or negro like it, it, it like that just is terminology but that doesn't mean like being black is not like this this nasty word like for example, like a Dominican, you saw you saw a Dominican, baby, baby, they cut your head off. Like they liable to argue you down. I've had that conversation with like, girl, I thought you was black. It's like I know black. It's like okay, girl. Now it's Afro- you're black. You're an Afro Latino. Afro Latina, like you're black. Like these people be looking. 
like, and they, like, some of these people look literally straight from the motherland. And, like, I'd be like, let's be for real. Let's be honest here. You're darker than me in the summer. Stop playing with me. Stop playing with me. Hair, same texture. And I got two black parents. Like, Like, you look like my, like, bro, you look like my uncle. Like, you look like my uncle, literally. Like, what you think, like, black people can't, like we come in all diverse shades, hair textures, no size. Like we we're diverse, but too black. You and I think I want people to understand ethnicity is one thing. Like you are of Spanish ethnicity, you are Latino ethnicity, but you are a black person. Like, come on. That's a whole other conversation that I have. I am a little bit tired of having with certain people, Let's- but. I think some people are coming are coming around to it, and I think it's as we're embracing the African culture and like black features, like because yeah. something that I really always have to press forward is that when we excel, other things come up behind us. So mm-hmm. our excelling, we bring people up with us. So you get to have your identity still. You having you acknowledging your blackness still does not negate you being Latina or Latino. Like, it doesn't negate those things. But they don't want to have these conversations. Okay, we're going to get there. We're going to get there in time. We're going to get there in time or or we're not. I I can't force you. I can't force you. All right. All right. Back to uh, the event. So, um, the words of Rita would sound a profound message as when the search was going on in July in the woods and um, in the woods and swamps and the rivers of Mississippi, eight Afri- African-American men were found in the, were found uh, during these searches. Um, one of the, one of them was a young boy um, who was found in a core t-shirt. Um, his name is Herbert um, Orsby, and he was 14 years old. And there were two other um, young uh, men who were found, uh, Henry Hezekiah D. and Eddie Moore, who were also among those found um, during these searches. Um they were also just so you know, like Henry, um, Henry and Eddie were kidnapped, um, and believed to be mur- uh, murdered back in in May of 1964. So, but the other five men, um, that were found are um uh, are unknown and are not identified. To this day, no, but they're not who they are. It makes me so sad, but. It, it really does. It it literally like disgusts me so much. Um, and it gets worse. So August 4th, six weeks after the kidnapping, um, their kidnapping, the bodies of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman were found by the FBI in the old Jolly Farm, which was outside of Philadelphia. The FBI investigated the case but could not bring charges because the case was seen as a state law case, although state and local uh, law enforcement claimed that they had insufficient evidence. 
Um, however, um, in December, the Justice Department charged 21 men with violating the civil rights of Foreigner Cheney and Goodman. Um, claims were made by authorities, however, and even Lyndon B. Johnson, um, they attempted to say that uh, before the men were found, that they believed that this was a civil rights movement stunt, um, their kidnapping. Yes, even the president who tried to like attempt, like this has just showed you how ingrained and like how unbelieved people are in their own, they can't even tell their own story because they're not believed. It was a stunt. These people are dead. <laughs> what? Like so, basically, before they were found dead, they like they basically said like they thought that their disappearance oh, the was a stunt. Oh. oh, that they were kidnapped as a stunt to rile up things that things weren't that bad. But what about all the other kidnappings that happened before this? And the murders and the missing people, just like, and I also want people to understand that like the undocumentedness of the situation like the reason why the five men are lost to history and time is simply because even if their families went on to find who they were the evidence is probably long gone and like there probably isn't records kept of these people and so they likely were put in like a city plot and just left to or whatever or thrown out like like this is so egregious, like that is so the level of hate and disdain is is crazy, and they just lost, and 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 these and and and, and, and like I said, like the young man Herb, uh, Herbert Orsby was fourteen years old, fourteen, a child. This wasn't an adult play game. Like this was a serious event happening. And I, I don't even know, like they in nothing I've read, did they ever mention finding out like what actually happened to these to these guys, like at all. And I believe Orsby was a separate incident. So Orsby's situation is not connected to Henry D or Eddie Moore. Eddie Moore and um Henry D were like their cases are connected, but not towards the or the other five men but we will never know because we don't know and whoever does know is probably long dead or they, they... long long gone <laughs> okay and it keeps going so Ugh. um so during january 1965 now we're getting into a whole new year uh, January 1965, 18 men were indicted by a grand jury in um, the uh, connection to violating the right, the civil rights of um, them. However, Judge William Harold Cox, however, um, only um, tried to hold accountable um, the law enforcement officers, such as. Uh, the, the sheriff's deputy, uh, Cecil Price, the county sheriff, and patrol officers um, in connection with this crime. So in 1967, now three years, three years, the grand jury didn't indict the men again. Judge Cox then proceeds over the case. Cox is, is a known um, segregationist, like so he he ain't for the civil rights thing, so we we already know what we're up against. 
um, he even previously is on record of being trying to be um, taken uh, down as a judge for calling a witness a chimpanzee in a previous case. Not a um, he, Okay. Girl, just the, the insanity. However, things were not all as they seem in a sense like people, I guess, times, you know, whatever. Um, but it seemed that things were different um, when the defense attorney was trying to drop info claiming that uh, Schwerner was involved in a rape and and basically trying to say that what happened to Schwerner was connected to his involvement with a supposed rape. Cox spoke out against that, warning against um, stating, um, warning against it, stating, I am, I, uh, I'm not going to allow a farce to be made of this trial. Um, prosecutors saw this um, and the jurors as a, a shift that actually echoed throughout the proceedings of this trial, that it let people know that this case was being taken seriously by Cox and like he wasn't, like we didn't know, like we were getting probably the closest to middle ground with him as possible. So um, Horace Doyle um, Burnett and James Jordan explained what most likely happened um, that June evening, uh, June 21st of 1964. So he, he stated, they stated that Cecil uh, Price, the sheriff's deputy, contacted the leader of a local uh, Ku Klux Klan, um, Edgar Ray Killen, um, who happened to be a Baptist minister Price uh, allegedly contacted him um, right before, I believe, the men were released. So this probably happened during that time. So there were, like, hours where he was just not there. So where he contacted, like, at some point contacted the men before he released them or a little bit after the release. Um, the time kind of is a little wonky with that. Um, the reason why I'm, I'm more inclined to believe it was a little beforehand, uh, before he released them from jail, is because of the quickness that a lot of these things began to happen. So he told, um, and Killian, uh, Killian, uh, told members of the clan, um, like, uh, where they were going and, and how they were going to be stirring up. So, Multiple men uh, piled into two cars and headed to Philadelphia. Um, although Price um, had released them, he then joined the Klansmen and to hunt down Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. The Klansmen caught up to their car and forced the men out of the car at Highway 19. They went on to um, Rock, uh, Rock Cut Road. Um, where the Klansman um, James um, uh, Jordan shot Cheney and Wayne Roberts um, shot Schwerner um, and Goodman. Uh, they then loaded up the station wagon with a uh, uh, wagon with um, the men's bodies. That is why when they found, when the investigators found the wagon, like it had like signs of either being burnt or just evidence being disturbed. So. And this is why. Um, and then they used them to transport them to the old Jolly Farm 
um, where they bulldoze and use uh, use a bulldozer in order to bury them in a little um, dirt pit. I saw and I saw that image, and I will probably never be able to unsee that image of. I, I'm going to try this, and I like this is why I really like you. They were positioned kind of just just like a dump, like inside of the hole, and just covered up with some dirt. Not a lot, really, either. Just just a little. Just farted like trash. And like, I met, That's crazy. Just trash. Um. With this testimony, um, the verdict was later read that the seven accused, Price Horace, uh, Pr uh, Cecil Price, Horace Doyle Burnett, um, uh, a man by the name of Robert, uh, James Arledge, Billy Wayne Posey, James Snowden, Samuel Bauer, uh, Bauer, who was also the Imperial Wizard, <laughs> of the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi. Bowers had hated Schwarner prior to this and had planned his murder all the way back in the spring of 64. So it was just like the plan was just coming to surface. Like this was been a plan. Like they were just trying to figure out a time that they could get Schwarner. Um, Killian walked free, however, during this time because one juror refused to sentence a minister. A man of God, I tell you, a man of God. Murderer. Like, murderer. Shame. Like, geez. it's crazy. The men were sentenced um, in, the 1970, um, in the 1970s, and due to um, federal, like, it, because of due to federal appeals that kind of held up the official sentencing of them, um, they were officially sentenced, and you're going to, and you're going to lose it, Alyssa. So hold on to your feet. Um, most of the men were sentenced to between three to ten years. Um, and none of these men served uh more than six years in prison. Are you kidding? You can serve yes. more time back in the '90s for selling weed than murdering. A bunch of people and being found guilty. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't like I wasn't aware like of what like I'm like I'm not sure 100 if the, what they were found guilty of was necessarily the for the murder. Oh, like like I really believe it was simply for the civil rights violation of them. Yeah. So like it's very strange. Like the, the the way this was like this is so convoluted. All right. So we're gonna push forward the timeline. So all was not over, however, in 1999, the Mississippi Attorney General, Michael Moore, um, announced that the case would be reopened. The FBI submitted oh, almost four forty thousand pages of investigation information. Uh, to the attorney general, and this resulted in Killian, our man, the KKK leader, and Mr. Minister, who is still wizard. alive. No, like he's not the Grand Wizard, but he, um, he he's not the Grand Wizard. The Grand Wizard was Mr. Bauer. He is, but the leader of the KKK of that local chapter. Uh, 
he, the man who walked free from that jury, just being unable to allow him to go to prison because he's a minister. Minister. And and so a grand jury um and ended up indicting um Killian in two thousand and five. Okay. All right, Alyssa, I see your face. I see your face. We're gonna keep moving forward. Like what? No, he was still alive. He was he was very much still alive. Um, however, evidence of of the other defendants were not brought uh were charges were not brought up against so i'm guessing double jeopardy didn't apply because i'm going to say that the reason probably double jeopardy didn't apply is because they probably didn't receive murder conviction uh, so it's yeah. not double Je- and also double jeopardy wouldn't apply to him because he wasn't like necessarily acquitted like he just walked free like it was it's crazy so um, and even though they have 40,000 pages of evidence Killian still was not found like he was not charged with murder one which is like plant ma- plant murder even though we all know it was um, he was charged with the lesser offense of manslaughter and was sentenced to 60 years in prison which is really a life sentence um, and yeah he ended up, I believe, dying in 2017. In prison? In prison. I was about to say, <laughs> electric chair. <laughs> electric chair. But, yeah. And, yes, it took 40 years for some semblance of justice to be handed out for, for these men. Um, to go back to what ended up happening with Core, um, due to the events and the subsequent assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, Core values and views did change when founding member James Farmer um, stepped down from his position as director in 1966. Um, director replacement was by a man of name um, Floyd McKissick. Um, whom followed the Black Power Movement, which was more of a militant Black Power Movement, which was more of a militant, of course, as we know, Black Panther Party um, mindset of things. Uh, and then shortly, in six, and then he stayed in power for and for a few years until uh, Wilford T. Usiri served as the chairman. Um, I'm just in chair and president. Uh, and then he was there for a short while until Roy Ennis, um, who served as the national chair. Um, actually, I'm so sorry. I don't know if uh, Killian died in 2017. So, sorry. Sorry about that. I'm going to look that up really quick. Sorry, folks. Sorry, folks. Sorry, folks. We're, we're a slow-moving thing because my, cause where I'm getting 2017 from in my memory is uh from this other date. I'm going to I hope he is still alive, rotten in jail at 175 years old. Like oh no, he died uh, in 2018. He died in 2018. Okay. So he died. Yeah. So he died and um also there is a movie um based on on this situation called Nashobi. Nashoba. Yeah. 
and it kind of and it talks about the price. It's called Neshoba, the price of freedom. If anybody is interested, you can find it on Prime Video. I have Prime Video, but am I willing to put myself into that? Probably. I like Black history. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So, yeah, prepare yourself if you do watch it. So, uh, and um, so, all right, back to what I was saying about CORE. So then chair and president uh, Roy Ennis served as the chair and president uh, a little after Wilford Uthiri. I don't really know the year that this happened, but then he ended up serving until 2017 until his death. And he supported Black nationalism. So he um, perpetuated Black nationalism among the core members and um, in 19 and in 1967, um, due to their black nationalism um, belief systems and like due to the belief, of course, the FBI was not a fan, was not a fan of CORE or any civil rights organization. And they put in a task force of program called the Cointer Pro program, which it was in an effort to neutralize um, uh, black nationalists. Um, and squashed them out um, during 1967. So they got, got on the FBI radar. Um, they did hit some snags and they had some successes where they expanded, of course, into Africa, into places like Kenya. And they, however, are not as big as they used to be. Um, apparently, they have faced some criticism. I did get this from Wikipedia, folks, so do not 100% quote me. And please, nobody tried to beat me up. Are getting canceled but it's being seen as they don't have really any charters or chapters anymore as they did in the past like that has kind of changed since the 90s like they didn't have any more chapters since the 90s so they just operating as a group and they kind of not been really doing much as they had been previously however at this time and the most recent of course core is doing immigration support and educational um services and there's i guess they're still doing other work in um african countries that they are connected and that you guys is the sad story um and the really the continued injustice because at the end of the day, there were more people involved in this situation than just Mr. Edgar Killian. Um, but he was the one who got the longest sentence and still got late in life, and he still was able to live his life. He lived his life. He was arrested as a very old man. He was born in January 17th of 1925. Oh, yay. He was older than my when he was in, officially indicted, he was 80 years old. Like, that was just really retirement village for him. Um, I cannot leave this case without, you know, of course, um, giving a reminder of the lives, of course, lost um, on June 21st, 1964, um, of James Cheney. Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, um, three young men who had a huge future in, in front of them if, and, and have really made history and sadly were not able to see all of the progress that they were able to, to make. 
Um, it is it is a sad turn of events. It is completely disgusting. Um, and to even I want to also bring acknowledgement to the eight men that were also found during their search. Um, five of which have still gone unidentified, and with a special also uh, note to the three young, um, one young young boy as well as two young men, uh, Herbert uh, Orsby, um, who was the young man again who was wearing the core T-shirt that they found, and um, Henry D and Eddie Moore, who were only nineteen. Um, your lives mattered. Um, and your loss is profound, and I'm sure that you are you you are remembered um, and missed by those that knew you. Because if he was 14 at the time of 1964, that means he would have been born in 1950. Uh, so, he, so people that would be connected to him now would be like in their 70s. Yeah. So these people still and 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 the same for Henry and um, Eddie, the, like the people in their lives being seventy. So I'm sure that the people who knew them still remember them to this day. So I just want to shine a light on those victims and those lives lost um, during the time of the 1960s and those who have progressed voices forward. The um, you know, Black Lives Matter always and. And this fight is not over. We we still have work to be done. And we can use um, the works of those that have set the groundwork of the past to incite and educate us for the future. And we will not allow our history to be snuffed out by lawmakers in these Republican states um, because our, our stories need to be told. It's just really... It's really sad how sometimes uh, history repeats itself and how a lot of these things are not unfamiliar to us in a generation 40, well, at this point, like 60 years removed from the civil rights movement. Like, we're still going through some of these things and I know we're not on the front lines as heavy as these people, like, being in boycotts and doing sit-ins and things like that like those those parts of the the movement have changed but like it's crazy and we, I want, come so far but we still have so much further to go right because like again like i want to say is that when we are still trying to change because and i believe like this also presses on to what mlk was trying to get at when he was basically saying like you know he basically sent us like like through wanting to integration and wanting us to have like the American dream and things like that and having a seat at the table, it was kind of putting us into the fire. And what ends up happening is what we are seeing today that that reverberates into the today because because the other side of that, the people that didn't want us and and simply want to kill us and mock us and harm us and do us harm their teachings and they're allowed to go into the world without question and without without reprimand re-education without 
without any squashing of what is going on. And what we are seeing now is the after effect of work not being done on the other side. That so much was being trying to be done to push the conversation forward and open doors and progress us that we didn't realize that what we were going into potentially was a burning building. And it's and it's sad to to really say that is, but because we are living in we are experiencing the ashes of that burning building right now, the smog and the smoke and all of that, because we are dealing with people that do not want people to figure out what is going on, and they understand that our future generations are going to be becoming more progressive and more um, informed. So they want to try to squash that out as best as possible, and it's so sad. Um, these, the, the lives lost and the things, the t- words of what Rita said were like, match so much of today. Like, we never really hear about black cases unless a white case accompanies it. And, and so it, it's so, it's, it's heartbreaking, but we, but we are fortified and we are, we are strong and we are determined and we are going to push forward and push past adversities that serve to extinguish us and put us out. But we are going to go forward and make sure that we keep pushing on the good fight. And and whatever that looks like, it's going to be sometimes be ugly. Not going to always be pretty. It's not always going to look how people may want it to look, but it needs to happen for, I feel like, the conversation and progression to happen. So it's not going to be an easy road, but it's a road that I feel like at the end of it, we are going to feel better for at the end of it. And maybe we won't see it, but it will be felt. Well, folks, thanks for joining us. I feel like this was definitely a heartfelt episode. But um, join us next week when we continue our decades. Anything you want to add before we head out? Um, no, I don't have anything else. I wish you guys all the best. And, you know, as summer comes to a close, we are still getting into those 90 degree weathers. Hurricanes are hitting California on the west side. It is a lot going on with climate change. So, folks, please stay safe. Um please uh, go to, uh, we will, I will also be putting into the description area um, ways in which you can potentially donate to Maui, which has been devastated by um, fires. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if anything comes to pass with like the hurricane that's hitting the Western side, if there's any efforts in order to rebuild or um, devastation loss on that end, we will definitely um, add that in future episodes and we will keep um the words going with different um uh different pieces that we find going on as you know life happens and climate change and racial tensions and things like that happen what are what's going on in our current society that we really need to um shine a light on so um like again please that's why i'm asking you to please always check our description box where we have our information not only for the references for our cases but also for um donation sites for 
things that are going on. So, yeah. Thank I'll you. see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.